This week on the Dan Cave, lots of Mariners talk to get to. I'll dig deeper into the rebuilding process, the details of it, the system behind the rebuild. And as we approach the halfway point of the season, we check in on how well it's all working. I'll give you a new name to tuck away, an under-the-radar pitching prospect who could be throwing heat at T-Mobile Park before season's end. And are there similarities between how the Mariners are rebuilding and how the Seahawks did it when Pete Carroll first rode into town? The Dan Cave is open. Let's do this. Welcome to the Dan Cave. Here's your host, Dan Vienz. All right, everyone. Welcome back to the Dan Cave. It's uh, been a couple of weeks. It's definitely a slower time of year for uh, all things Seattle-based sports. Uh, Seahawks are in their dead zone right now. Not a lot going on. In fact, they're literally restricted and prevented from uh, being able to do any kind of organized team activities right now. So training camp doesn't start for a few more weeks. Um, so it's a lot of Mariner talk right now, and it's uh, the beginning of summer for most people. Um, we'll get back into the weekly episodes by the end of July. As soon as training camp kicks off for the Seahawks, really we'll have we'll have plenty to talk about on a weekly um, on a weekly basis. But thank you for joining me. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Um, listens are growing steadily. I have a good solid audience now. I can I can basically. Uh, predict pretty accurately within the first 24 hours of posting an episode how many listens I'm going to get and it's very very consistent and that tells me that those of you who listen are very loyal uh, and consistent in your support and I I very much appreciate that whether you're listening on uh, Apple, Spotify, um, Overcast, Pocket Casts, Podbean, there's six others uh, that carry this podcast. Uh, The best thing you can do if you haven't done it already is click that subscribe button and then uh, you'll get notifications anytime I do post um, a new episode. Um, you can also support the, p- the podcast. If you'd like to, it would be much appreciated. Any any money that I get into this podcast will go directly back into it, um, be it through either equipment upgrades or, uh, or some production details uh, in how I put the episodes together. So, uh, And I want to give a special shout out, a special thank you this week. To my listeners in the UK and in Sweden. So I get a breakdown. I can see where my listenership's coming from, what kind of devices um, people are listening on, which of the platforms um, they're using, and also where they're from. And I get, uh, there's about seven or eight different countries that are registering, but two in particular, uh, I get enough listens that it's 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 measurable. Um, it's, a, it's above 1%, basically. Um, that lets me know that I have people listening there on a regular basis. So whoever you are out there in the UK and Sweden, um, thank you so much for listening to the Dan Cave. I'd love to hear from you. You can always follow me on on Twitter at Seahawks Forever if you don't already. You can uh, you can engage with me there. Those of you who have know that I, I like to engage in debate and discussion um, about things I'm passionate about on Twitter. So don't be shy. And you can also email. Um, the podcast at the Dan cave at gmail.com. If you have a more detailed take or an idea, um, something you want me to talk about, uh, or questions you have, send them to my email and I will read them on the air and address them there. Um, as I said, dead time of the year for the Seahawks. We will touch on some Seahawk things later in this episode, but lots to talk about with the Mariners. And, uh, today's a great day for another reason. Those of you who know me know that I'm a passionate music fan and that, uh, that my favorite band for the last uh, 14 years, have they been around? 15 years has been Alter Bridge and uh, new music is coming out. A new record will be out in October, but today uh, they were previewing their first single from that album, a song called Wouldn't You Rather on Sirius XM. I spent about two hours today signing up for Sirius's streaming platform just so I could listen to the preview and um, all sorts of problems with the app and with their player on uh, online. Finally got to listen to it. I've heard it a couple times. Did not disappoint. Uh, if you're an Alter Bridge fan or, or just a fan of, of newish, hard, melodic rock, uh, check it out. It'll be out tomorrow or uh, midnight Eastern time here in the U.S. on Spotify and Apple and however you listen to music. Uh, but let's get into the Mariners again, um, because if there's anything to be seen as a positive, for those of you who don't think rebuilding is a positive, it gives you a lot to talk about. If this were just any other year 
where the Mariners had tried to piece together a contender. And they were sitting where they are today with the exact same one loss record in the exact same place in the standings. There really wouldn't be anything to talk about because there would be no hope of contention. Really, we would just be talking about tearing it down and starting a rebuild. Well, that happened already. And we're about nine months into that now. Um, the last couple of episodes, I focused on sort of um, taking my stance in the debate of um, why this is a good thing. Today, I want to dive deeper. Remember the phrase, trust the process. And if you're like, God, I've heard that before. Where did I hear that? It was really adopted by the Philadelphia 76ers back in 2013. Um, Their general manager used it. uh, And then it really took off. And in fact, for those of you from the Northwest, You'll remember former Husky basketball player Tony Roten was with the Sixers, and he he actually said this in an interview, and then it kind of gained steam from there, and it became such a slogan that it was printed on T-shirts, and it and it kind of inadvertently became a marketing campaign, and and what it meant was just that that the 76ers were going through a drastic teardown and rebuild. And it was a long-term plan. It was a plan that they knew was going to be painful for quite some time. But that ultimately, at the end of it, it was going to result in a more talented team. A team with some young stars to build around. And a team with some flexibility and assets so they could acquire talent to put them over the top. Uh, For the first four years of this process, um, don't be scared if you hear that moaning in the background. It's, It's not anybody having any kind of a, uh, a stroke or an aneurysm or a physical breakdown. It's just Allie. It's just uh, one of the dogs <laughs> moaning and groaning about me not paying enough attention to her, most likely. Uh, but she's fine. Uh, but back to trust the process. Between 2013 and 2016, uh, the 76ers won a total of 47 games. They won 10 games in 2013. Out of 82, as a basketball fan, that had to be uh, extremely painful. They've won over 50 games the last two years. They have some of the best elite young talent in the league. They came um, a Kawhi Leonard miraculous shot in Game 7 in the quarterfinals away from being in the Final Four of the NBA this last season. They look like they're on the brink of championship contention now and for the foreseeable future and that they could contend for a while. But that was a phrase that they used ad nauseum over and over again between 2013-2016. Trust the process. They had a very specific plan. They had it mapped out, not just for um, what the goals were today, but for next week, next month, six months from now, a year from now. And they even map it out three, four years in advance. How it's going to look if it works. It's the way any of us would plan uh, to save for a house or a car or put a business plan together and, and plan to open a business someday. It's the way good teams go about restructuring or rebuilding. And it's even the way good teams continue to stay good. You have to plan this way. So I'm going to try to on the process and illustrate how this is all part of a detailed plan. Mariners aren't just taking shots in the dark, as some would believe. They're not just banking on hope and hoping on hope. They're not pinning all those hopes on one or two prospects. You know, remember that? Oh, as soon as Dustin Ackley gets here, wait till you see him. It's, he's going he's gonna to turn the whole thing around. It's a systematic undertaking with a vision and a plan that involves, literally, involves every single coach, every executive, every player at every level doing everything a certain way. And a front office that's employing a very specific philosophy of identifying and acquiring young talent with the end goal of having a big league club contending for titles, like those 76ers are now, being built to contend for the long run in a deep minor league system underneath it, producing major league talent every year, but also producing 
assets, an abundance of assets that can be used to go out and acquire impact talent and pieces when they're needed. That's the goal. The last couple of episodes, as I said, I've, I've focused more on the standpoint of, hey, if you're dismissing this rebuild out of hand simply because you don't like rebuilding or you're just damaged or frustrated or angry because you don't like not winning, and who does? Here's why this is a good idea. I was trying to make the argument why this is the right thing to do at the right time. Now, I want to get more into what is happening. And a lot of this comes from listening to Jerry Depoto. He is one of the things I love about him. He's extremely transparent about what they're doing. And he loves talking about it. And he's extremely bright and articulate. He can talk about it in great detail. And he can take very complex um, ideas and and communicate them plainly so the common fan can understand them. Jack Sarenchik, well... I don't even want to use that as an example because Jack Sarenchik never talked about the plan because there never was a plan. But first, I want to give some context to this, okay? Because now we have a larger sample size. In the offseason, it was easier to take sides on simply whether you liked or didn't like the direction this was heading because it was all conjecture. It was all just a bunch of ingredients. And it was like we were, you know, trying to come up with a new cake recipe. And we had all these ingredients. Some of them sounded cool. Some of them sounded weird. And this is how great chefs operate or, or one of those top chef shows or maybe maybe an episode of Chopped where a couple of the ingredients don't make sense. But we hadn't put them together yet to see how they bake, how they cook, the texture, the color, the flavor, the scent. Now we're three months into this thing of, of actually playing games. And so there is a little bit of a sample size. There is some evidence. It's extremely early. You can't make all the conclusions at this point. But I think it's safe to say the Mariners' rebuild, whether you like it or not, is looking better by the day. We'll get into the team itself in a minute. They're playing better as a team as of late. They, they lost today 4-2 to Milwaukee. But they've been playing more consistent baseball uh, in the month of June, really. And they're doing it against good teams. Some of the young players have stepped up and they're looking like answers. But let's go back to the farm. It's midseason down there. It's all-star time. It's time for players to be recognized for having great years. So uh, AAA all-star game hasn't happened yet. But they've had all the all-star games now in uh, all the A-leagues and the A leagues and in the Mariners' uh, full season, they, they have two A teams, basically a rookie-level team, West Virginia, and then uh, the Modesto Nuts, who are their high-advanced A, it's called, and then the Arkansas Travelers in A. Between those three rosters, the Mariners placed 21 players in those three All-Star games. It's an average of seven per game. And keep in mind, those 21 players do not include Jared Kelenic, best prospect in the system, because he was promoted about a month ago, and then he jammed his wrist and missed a few games. But because he was promoted, he wasn't eligible for either of the All-Star games. Julio Rodriguez got hurt and missed six weeks. Mariners, probably their third or fourth best prospect. So those two guys, and Logan Gilbert, their best pitching prospect, all three of those guys are on the Baseball America top 100 prospects list, and none of them made an all-star game because they were either injured or they were promoted, as Gilbert was as well. So if they had stayed put, this number could have easily been 24. But it's 21. For perspective, only two other organizations had more players in those three all-star games. One more. They each had 22, and it was the Yankees and the Rays known to have two of the best player development systems in all of baseball. And the Mariners are right there with them in the number of players they placed in these games. And watching highlights from that AA All-Star game alone was amazing because it was just every Mariner pitcher was striking guys out. Every Mariner hitter got a hit. Uh, even Donnie Walton 
who you've probably never heard of. Double A utility player got a base hit. It was uh, it was pretty cool to see. And we're waiting to hear the announcement of the futures game. Um, there will undoubtedly be a couple of Mariners playing in that game. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if Kellnick makes that game unless they deem that he's too young. But anyway, that that'll be happening in the next uh, in the next few days. Because voting just ended today for the American or for the uh, Major League All Star game, so 21 players in those three All Star games at the lower levels of the minor leagues. And in addition to those three names that I mentioned that weren't even part of that, what I think is cool is those 21 players weren't just the Evan Whites and the Kyle Lewises. They weren't just the headliners, the first round draft picks, the guys you've heard about, the guys that are supposed to be All Stars. Because they're quote-unquote top prospects. There's some unsung guys and lower draft picks that are developing into very interesting prospects that were in those All-Star games. Darren McCaken, starting pitcher. Nabil Krizmat, starting pitcher. Donnie Walton, who I mentioned. And another name to watch who could be a really fast riser shooting through the system with a bullet. I teased him in the intro. I'll talk about him in just a little bit. Uh, another cool development this last week in the minor leagues, LJ Newsom, who I talked about a couple weeks ago, guy that completely changed his profile in one off season by increasing his velocity and has been promoted from high A to double A where he continued to dominate. In fact, I think his numbers have been better in double A. He had thrown eight innings, I think with Arkansas struck out 10, walked one. He got a spot start in Tacoma last week because the team called up Mike Wright on the day he was supposed to start for Tacoma. So they call up Newsom. He goes five innings and strikes out 10 in five innings in AAA. They send him back to Arkansas, but he won't be there for long. LJ Newsom is going to be in Tacoma by the end of the year. And uh, he's a really interesting one to keep an eye on. But here's the point I want to make now that I've given some context to how things are going in the minor leagues. This is not a mistake. This is not an accident. This is not a fluke. On if, if you're really interested in this stuff, you have to look up, and obviously you listen to podcasts. If you don't listen to The Wheelhouse, which is Jerry DePoto's podcast that he does with Aaron Goldsmith, uh, the play-by-play announcer for the Mariners, uh, highly recommend it. Find it on Apple Podcasts. I assume it's on Spotify as well. Um, they do it on a... It's usually weekly, but sometimes it depends on travel or whatnot, so it's every one to two weeks. And DePoto's a fascinating guy to listen to. But he went into some detail, some really great detail on a particular system that they have in place to actively seek out and identify players who fit their plan. And not only that, because every organization does that. They keep an eye on other organizations and boy, we like that player. Boy, we like that player. But sometimes like every organization baseball knows about Jaron Kelnick and would love to have him, but you can't get him. He's not going to be available. Not every team goes this far, the way DePoto describes it, to identify players that not only fit their plan, but who also may be available next week, next month, this offseason, next year. They're actively seeking players from organizations who may have a roster crunch. You can only protect 40 players on your roster, and every year some of those players reach a point where they've been in the minor leagues long enough that if you don't protect them on their 40-man roster, you could lose them. They're eligible for the Rule 5 draft. It's how the Mariners got Brandon Brennan this year. He was a he was a graduate of this process, I guess you could say. So they try to identify teams that have six, seven, eight guys that are going to need to be on the 40-man next year, but there isn't room because that organization's 40-man roster is young and talented enough, and they're either going to have to move a guy off of there who could also be identified or not be able to protect some of these other players. And they're not necessarily the elite guys. The Mariners are specifically looking for players that they can buy at a bargain. They can buy low on. You hear that term a lot. And it's not because... They're a flawed player in the sense that the Oakland A's used to look at. Because you may be thinking, gosh, this sounds a lot like Moneyball. 
it is in a way it is in the sense that you're trying to find players who slip through the cracks who are undervalued by other organizations one man's trash is another man's treasure kind of an idea but the difference is the a's were specifically doing that to save money to get cheap players they would they would actively acquire flawed players and the example in the book and in the movie is a northwest guy scott hatterberg who had never played first base before he was coming off a serious injury as a catcher he could never catch again so no team wanted him but they thought if they could somehow make a first baseman out of him he could still hit the bat will play and they'll get him for super cheap it worked but they were they were looking for flawed players the Mariners aren't looking for flawed players. In fact, they're looking for the opposite. They're looking for young players who are dynamic and have upside and who have multiple tool sets, but who for one reason or another are being overlooked or just getting caught in a numbers crunch that they can buy low on. Exhibit A. I'm going to give you three exhibits, and actually four examples. But Exhibit A is Jake Fraley. We've talked about Fraley recently because he's been on fire. He's he was the second piece in the Mike Zanino deal. The, when Zanino was traded to Tampa, it was the first trade that Depoto made to start this process. The headliner in the deal was Malik Smith coming back. Malik Smith, prototypical leadoff hitter, solid defensive center fielder, fast as anything, one of the top five fastest guys in the league. Hit 290 last year with a 360 on base percentage, steals a bunch of bags. Young, not even in his prime yet. He was 25 at the time of the trade. He was the headliner, and oh, by the way, they got this 23-year-old single-A outfielder who uh, who had a good year in high A last year. He hit 340, named Jake Fraley. Um, Fraley had some injury issues. This might have contributed to this. He only had 200-and-something at-bats, but he hit 347 in high A. But 23 years old, about to be 24, is older for that level. And so there are some organizations that they'll they'll discount that player. And so he was kind of an afterthought in this trade. This was basically Zanino for Malik Smith. But Jake Fraley had made a swing adjustment last year with the Rays in high A. And and DePoto made this point on his podcast. He said, We people are crediting us with making the swing swing adjustment. He had already made it on his own. We noticed it and saw it and were tracking it and thought that it could really parlay itself into him being a much better prospect than he appeared. So now you can see how it's taken hold. He was hitting 313, 386, 539, dominating double A, was on his way to being um, player of the league in the Texas League. MVP of the Texas League. was one of the top three or four guys that would have been under consideration to be MVP in that league. 11 home runs, 16 stolen bases, uh, the 386 on base percentage. Really, really promising stat line. And playing plus defense at all three outfield positions. Um, He was promoted to Tacoma last week. He had a home run in his second at bat. He's already made a couple dramatic catches in the outfield. Only hitting 192 in six games so far, but... He'll make the adjustment. He's going to see more lefties and AAA. He's going to see more breaking balls. If he does make that adjustment and starts hitting in AAA the way he has all the way up through his career, we could see him in Seattle before the end of the season. But Fraley, in a short period of time, has has turned himself from when the trade was made, I heard a lot of, he could be like Ben Gamble was, a fourth outfielder basically can pay can play two, three, four times a day in different positions to get guys a day off, but probably not a major league regular and probably not an everyday player or an above average player. That profile may have changed. Now he's starting to look like a major piece of the future outfield and maybe, I know Braden Bishop's been hurt, he's got the spleen injury, who knows when he's going to be back or if he's going to be able to play every day before the end of the year, but he may have leapfrogged Braden Bishop even as an outfield prospect um, in this system. Um, A couple other examples of this approach, of finding guys who kind of slip through the cracks or or haven't been as valued by their organizations. Uh, A lot of the bullpen guys, Austin Adams and Connor Sadzak, before he got hurt, certainly were two that fit this mold. Brennan was one. Tom Murphy, the backup catcher. Omar Narvaez, the starting catcher. 
acquired from the White Sox, was a platoon player in Chicago. They didn't think he was a good enough defensive player, didn't frame pitches well enough, didn't block pitches well enough. So guess what? The Mariners saw the bat and thought he was athletic enough that they could make him a better catcher. And his framing ability has improved dramatically. He's become a serviceable defensive catcher, and he and Murphy together are really, really nice tandem. Domingo Santana is another example. Milwaukee didn't have room for him in that, in that outfield because of his defensive liabilities. Mariners got him for the bat. The bat certainly, certainly plays. He's been hitting in the middle of that lineup and producing consistently as of yesterday. was still leading the American League in RBIs and... They moved him back to his natural position in right field. He seems much more comfortable there. Hasn't committed an error there in 15 games. Um, another example of, of finding these guys that just have slipped through the cracks. These were all guys the Mariners thought highly of, thought they could produce if they were given the support and the opportunity. And that's key, the opportunity. Tom Murphy just kind of got caught in a squeeze in San Francisco. Didn't have They didn't have a chance to get him the at-bats. Narvaez didn't either. I can't remember the, the White Sox name, but they have a, a young uh, uh, big-time catcher, Baez, maybe. I, I can't remember the name off the top of my head. But And then Santana obviously just got squeezed as a fourth outfielder in the National League where they don't have the DH because they have Braun and Yelich and Kane. And there was just no room for him. They were all guys they bought low on. They didn't have to give up much to get these guys because they were in a situation with their former team where there was a surplus. But they all look like outstanding everyday players who either A, and this is going to be a common theme, either A, are going to be part of this thing as they build this core, or B, could be used to acquire other pieces they don't need when the time is right. With the surplus of outfielders we have on the way, I could easily see Santana ultimately his best value to the team being in a year or two, maybe you use him while he still has some control years as a guy that could help us acquire pitching, just as an example. Okay. So it's, again, they're looking for players with high upside, but who are, who the, the cost of acquisition is lower at the moment. And that's key. And it, as you're looking to build something long-term, it it's a better allocation of resources. It makes them more affordable than they would be on the open market. It's a <laughs> little side note here. Uh, and this is, this is aimed at those, uh, those fans that I, that, that I'm continually acknowledging those damaged fans who are so cynical and they still insist the Mariners will never succeed because they always do things the same way and they always do them poorly. This is not the Mariner way. This, this idea that I'm talking about of DePoto's philosophy for trying to acquire talent is not the Mariner way for the last 10 years or the, or the 10 years prior to DePoto arriving, the Mariner way was more like, overpaying for veteran free agents past their prime locking into long-term contracts on guys you had to overpay for to get them to come to Seattle that was that was Jack Sorensic's primary way of acquiring players okay so it's the opposite of what's happening now you could even see this kind of philosophy at work in the way that they ran the draft this year they were picking in the 20s in each round which means, you know, the elite guys are off the board. And it was thought to be, you heard this a lot heading into the draft, it's a it's a down year for college pitching. It wasn't a down year for college pitching as far as volume and guys that are available in the range the Mariners drafted in. It was considered a down year for pitching because in the top 10 to 15, there weren't the big names. There weren't the slam duck, dunk, dynamic, big time college arms that you could count on in the top 10 or 15. And so the entire class kind of got downgraded by the experts and the analysts and the draft geeks as a down year for college pitching. It wasn't. It was just a down year at the top. So the Mariners kind of took advantage of that. While other organizations focused on bats and high school pitching, the Mariners just kind of sat back and scooped up all the best college pitchers in the first five rounds. Ended up with George Kirby and Brandon Williamson and Isaiah Campbell. 
I mean, did, did you watch Isaiah Campbell in the College World Series? Did you watch how dominant he was in his two starts for Arkansas? Did you see that fastball command, 91-95, two-seamer, four-seamer, up in the zone, down in the zone, left, right? Did you see that curveball? And he was the third starter the M's drafted. So they kind of took this philosophy into the draft, too. I just want to make that point. But give, give that podcast a chance. Listen to him talk about the process. Because this is very much not Jack Sarenchik and his plan. Because that wasn't even a plan. When Jack took the job, he talked about pitching and defense, and we all got excited because that's how you needed to build the Mariners at Safeco Field before they moved the fence in. That's how you had to build the team. And he went out and made that first trade and brought in Franklin Gutierrez. And we thought, oh, he means what he says. But then he went out and spent the next five years acquiring DHs and drafting guys without a clear defensive position. Guys who were bad defensively. Depoto is the opposite of that. He has a clear plan and a clear process. It's being executed on a daily basis in every single office of that building. Okay. So exhibit B, get to the second player. J.P. Crawford. If you've watched any of the Mariner games over the last week, you know J.P. Crawford. When the Mariners made that trade that sent Gene Segura to Philadelphia for Crawford, a lot of people, fans, writers, were lukewarm. And they were lukewarm because Crawford, at one time, was a top 10 prospect in baseball. And for three years running was the Phillies' number one prospect. But he had dropped off all those lists because the Phillies gave him a couple opportunities at the end of 2017, at the end of 2018. And he didn't hit. Last year, he hit 214 in his stint with the Phillies. But here's what the Mariners saw. (laughs) Yeah, he hit 214, but that was 117 at-bats. 117 at-bats. And he was trying to pull the ball. He just admitted this this week. He was trying to hit for power. He was trying to prove himself. He got away from what made him a 280 hitter throughout his entire minor league career with great discipline, almost as many walks as strikeouts, good power, good defensive shortstop, high on base percentage, level swing, hit the ball to all fields. The Phillies were willing to give up on him and sell him low because he wasn't good enough for six weeks in the bigs. The Mariners saw what he was, had confidence in their development team, that they could get him back to that, took the right approach with him when they acquired him, didn't rush him, didn't put pressure on him, let him prove it in Tacoma. And look what he's doing now. He's been the Mariners' best player for the last week, week and a half. And I saw his splits yesterday, and and I think it was the Orioles actually played the shift against him the other day, and I don't know what, what they're looking at, but that was stupid because I've never seen more even splits in my life. Essentially, his spray chart was a third of the hits go to left field, a third of the hits go to center field, and a third of the hits go to right field. And he's hitting the ball in gap. He's hitting the ball hard. Even his outs are hard. He's playing an outstanding shortstop. He runs first to third as well as anyone on the team, certainly as well as most guys in the league. Another example of a guy that the Mariners saw what he could be, trusted their their player development staff, to get it out of him and were able to acquire him for a lot less. A year before, if the Mariners had wanted to acquire J.P. Crawford in 2017, it would have cost a lot more. And again, this was not luck. Remember the story. I've told it on this podcast. Last October, or last September actually, the season wasn't over and and the Mariners hadn't announced they were going to uh, tear things down and try to rebuild. But the, but the wheels were turning. And Jerry DePoto brought his whole player development team together and gave them a blank roster with 25 slots on it and said, fill out an ideal roster that you would want to see us have in two to three years. It could be anybody. It, it, it has to be realistic. You know, you can't just list 
uh, Bryce Harper, Mike Trout, Manny Machado. It has to be realistic. And the most commonly chosen name consistently on all of those sheets of paper from all the executives and scouts who were in that room was J.P. Crawford at shortstop. So he was a guy that systematically the organization had viewed as someone that they would value. They were able to get him, and now um, he looks like a cornerstone. Exhibit C. This would be a much quicker one because you're more familiar with him. Daniel Vogelbach. Again, he was acquired three years ago, acquired very low. Mariners traded Mike Montgomery, who was in the last year of arbitration, was about to become expensive, was out of options. Um, traded him to the Cubs for Daniel Vogelbach, who was stuck in AAA behind Anthony Rizzo and wasn't going to get an opportunity in the National League because Rizzo was entrenched at first base. So the Mariners got him in a late-season trade for a pitcher that didn't fit into their long-term plans. And now he's getting an opportunity to play every day, and he looks like the Mariners' best hitter on most nights. He looks like their smartest hitter on most nights. Um, I think we're past the point where we have any doubts that it's legitimate. And he might be the Mariners' all-star this year. So just another example. So (laughs) I kind of had this idea banging around in my head. And I wanted to put this out there. I wanted to ask you guys this. Is this plan that I just that I just described, is it taking a page from Pete Carroll and the Seahawks? Not specifically. I'm not saying did Jerry DePoto look at what the Seahawks did and and devise a plan to mirror that. But there are some eerie similarities. Remember that first year for the Seahawks, over 200 player transactions. I actually I tried looking it up, I couldn't find it. It may I think it was over 300 which is about how many bullpen arms the Mariners have churned through this year. But it's, let me, let me just try to make the connection. The Mariners have brought in a bunch of relief pitchers, just to use the bullpen as an example. They were all available this year because they had failed in some way or another with other teams. And they, they got caught in roster crunches like I had talked about. But they all fit a very specific profile. Big fastballs, mid mid to upper 90s, dynamic stuff. But they struggle with command, and that makes them expendable because they were let go by teams who are trying to contend. The Mariners, taking advantage of a year in which they're not trying to contend, have been bringing these guys in like crazy, giving them a chance, seeing if they can strike lightning in a bottle. Adams and Sadzak are great examples. Matt Saraceti, who was just brought in last week, has looked great. Mike Wright, who was a punching bag in Baltimore. And when we picked him up after they DFA'd him, uh, a lot of the comments on Twitter were from Orioles fans saying, (laughs) well, he'll fit right into what you're doing. Good luck. Uh, You know, good riddance. We're glad to be rid of him. He seems to be finding a little bit of a groove. Anthony Bass, another good example. David McKay is a guy pitching well in AAA right now that we've seen a couple times in short stints. We'll probably see him again this year. He was acquired for a dollar a couple of years ago from the Kansas City Royals. Um, This is kind of the Pete Carroll way. He targeted and acquired a certain personality type, certain guys who fit his scheme and his style, And he used those first couple years when there were no expectations to give them opportunities. And in 2011, 2012, they didn't win football games, but you could start to see it building. You could see flashes. You could see players thriving because they were given the opportunity to play every day. You could start to see the core come together. You started to see all the other transactions slow down, even though the wins weren't there. And you could start to dream on the future and see the beginnings of something. You can see that with the Mariners right now, on most days. You're seeing some of those young players developing before our eyes. Their speed bumps, their stops, their starts, their streaks. But you can see the growth, and you can see that the talent's legit. 
Malik Smith, another great example. Ever since he was sent to Tacoma to work on his approach to the plate, you can see the player he was in 2018 and how dynamic he can be at the top of the order. So it's just, I kind of thought that was interesting. I don't know, you tell me. Am I right? Am I wrong? It's just, it's reminiscent of that. And I think, you know, some of us, and, and I still even do on a daily basis, I think, okay, at what point is enough is enough? At what point does it stop? Can Jerry DePoto help himself? Or is he just going to keep trading these guys and trading these guys because he loves doing it? I There will be trades. And don't be surprised if some of these prospects I've talked about, some of the ones that are developing, may not ultimately be part of the plan. They may be used to acquire other players. And there are going to be trades in the next month. I think I think they want to move Mike Leake. I think they want to move D. Gordon. But you will see it start to slow down. And then what did the Seahawks do? Then they went out and they acquired players to put them over the top. When it looked like it was starting to come together and they were starting to become good and they just needed a couple of pieces and that core was blossoming and they thought it was time to legitimately win... And Russell Wilson was starting to get more comfortable about a third of the way into his rookie season. You could see he was something special. They went out and they traded for Marshawn Lynch. And that helped put him over the top. And then the next couple off seasons, they took some big swings that didn't necessarily work out, but they took swings. They tried the Percy Harvin thing. They traded for Jimmy Graham, trying to get that one last, that one last piece to build around the core. I think that's what we'll be talking about a year from now two years from now in particular. You know, now, do you go out and make that big swing and sign that big free agent or more likely trade from a surplus of good prospects to bring in someone who's a little more affordable and controllable but in their prime, similar to what the Brewers did with Christian Yellick. We could talk about, now that they're playing each other right now, we could talk even more about how the Mariners' rebuild plan more closely mirrors the Brewers, um, but I'll let Jerry DePoto do that himself. If you listen to the latest episode of The Wheelhouse, he gets into that, and I think it's a really good parallel. Um, people want to compare what the Mariners are doing to what the Houston Astros did. doesn't compare at all. The Astros had to lose 100 games for three or four years in a row for this to work. They nailed every single draft pick, which is very rare except for Mark Appel. Um, but when they began their rebuild, they had nothing at the major league level. They had no assets to trade. They were literally starting from scratch. The Brewers had a good young core, had to move a couple of players and take a step back, and then retool, make a couple of bold moves, and now they're on the verge of contention. Um, I think that more closely mirrors, on a baseball level, what the Mariners are doing. Um, But I think uh, the Seahawks provide a pretty good football analogy. Um, so for the rest of the baseball season, uh, every episode I'm going to do this, uh, new thing, we'll call it a segment, I guess, um, just a Mariners prospect name to watch. And I'm going to, I'm going to focus on guys that you might not have heard of. Um, I'm going to try to stay away from, eh, Kyle Lewis had a big week cause y'all know about Kyle Lewis, but do you know about Sam Delaplane? He was one of those double A all-stars, um, I think he's a really good example for those of you who doubt uh, DePoto's ability to build a farm system. Of This is a guy that was drafted and has been developed by the Mariners. And in particular, he was drafted very, very late. Delaplane was a 23rd round pick out of Eastern Michigan in 2017. Maybe because of his stature. He's only 5'11", 175 pounds. Not exactly an imposing figure on the mound. But he misses bats. Throws in the low 90s, he can touch the mid 90s, but his breaking stuff is spectacular. If you're on Instagram, follow MILB Mariners, same on Twitter, but on Instagram, they seem to post more videos. And they get the MILB TV package, and so you, you see a lot of highlights from these AA guys. His breaking stuff is filthy. 2018, full season at low A, Clinton. He struck out 159 innings. This year, he started the season in Modesto. That's high A. 
He was promoted to Arkansas. Overall, in 40 innings, he struck out 80 batters with only 15 walks. He has a 50% strikeout rate. 50% of the batters he's facing, he's striking out. That's unheard of. He looks like a legitimate back-end bullpen arm. He's been just as good in double-A as he was in high-A, which leads me to believe he's going to see Tacoma soon. We could see him in Seattle by the end of the year. If he gets to triple-A and he's still striking out two batters in the inning and not getting hit hard, uh, I think you'll see this kid in September, and he will be one of a few names that um, uh, that they could be building that bullpen around in 2020. Um, which, by the way, is in my notes as uh, a topic to cover. We might do it in two weeks because we're still not going to have a lot of Seahawks to talk about until training camp opens. So um, we may do that next episode where I've made the argument here before. Yes, the Mariners' bullpen has been bad, although it's been much better lately because they're finding some pieces uh, with all this gum that they're throwing against the wall to see what sticks. But there are some other guys, too. Guys coming back from injuries, guys in the lower minors. There's another uh, college reliever drafted two years ago that just got promoted in the minor leagues to double-A, Joey Gerber, who looks really interesting. You can start to see the pieces now, and I've always said that you can build a bullpen in short order. You can build a bullpen with two or three key free agent signings or a trade here and there and some guys from minor leagues. Um, You can start to see the pieces now of what could be a pretty darn good bullpen in... 2020 and DePoto has said that he intends that his timeline is the second half of 2020 he wants this team to start look interesting as he puts it basically to exhibit the signs of a team that's on the verge of being really good and part of that would be bullpen and I don't think they would go out and spend a bunch of money in free agency next year between 2019 and 2020 for bullpen arms. So you'll probably do that from within. But there are signs that, that we're putting some Jenga pieces here together to build a decent bullpen for next year. And um, and I'll try to uh, I'll aim for that for the next episode and, and actually put some names together and kind of give you an idea of what that might look like. Lefty, righty, who might be the closer, etc. We're also going to talk about Mitch Haniger. Uh, on the next episode he's working his way back he's on the road trip he should be close to coming back from that horrific injury that i don't even want to say out loud because it's going to make me cringe uh what are they going to do when he comes back there will be a a bit of an outfield jam um with santana playing so well in right field and malik smith playing so well in center field what uh obviously hanniger is going to play every day but what do you do with the outfield alignment and what does that mean um long term i want to touch on uh some seahawks before I go, um, another idea I was kicking around, and this is something I've, I've spent a lot of time last year talking uh, with a couple of friends about, was this rebuild, or they didn't call theirs, the Mariners called theirs a step back, the Mariners called their, or the, the Seahawks called theirs a, a reset. They didn't want to use the word rebuilding either, another kind of similarity between those two. Was this a two-year plan? The whole time. Going into last year, Carolyn Schneider, in addition to not wanting to use the term rebuild, spoke in terms of, of turning things around in one year and resetting the roster, making some significant changes, setting themselves up financially with some more flexibility down the road, but staying in contention and, and having a chance to win the division that last year. But behind the scenes, were they seeing it more as a two-year process and there are some signs that maybe in fact it was there was an they had an interesting draft last year some guys contributed right away but a few of the picks were clearly with a more distant future in mind now in in hindsight being 2020 in retrospect the selections of Rashad Penny and Rasheem Green have the look of red shirt picks even though Penny was taken in the first round even if he hadn't gotten hurt I don't know how much bigger his role would have been with Chris Carson running the way he was running. Um, Likewise, Green was the youngest player in the league last year. Even though he looked good in the preseason, he he clearly needed some work on his technique, needed to get stronger. Shaquem Griffin uh, was another one. There was no way he was going to be ready for a significant role his rookie year. 
you look back now a year and a half later, and that draft has the look of one that was meant more for year two, year three, year four. Uh, there were also a bunch of other questions with free agents. You know, there was a, the big three, Clark and Wilson and Wagner, and then Reed was pending, and that had to be sorted out. There were the coaching changes with Schottenheimer and Solari taking over the offense and Ken Norton Jr. coming back to run the defense. Those are huge changes. Changes to the locker room, leaders out, new leaders emerging. It, it now looks in retrospect like they had intended for it to take two years. But they weren't going to admit it. They didn't want to talk about it. This year's draft was much more about guys who fit a specific need and can contribute right away. I can make the case that six, seven, eight of the 11 guys they picked this year uh, are going to play key roles immediately. Uh, contract issues have been resolved. Uh, Wilson got signed and Clark got traded and uh, Wagner's going to get signed before the season started. Um, I, I just wanted to bring this up. It was talked about a lot within the Seahawks riding community. Um, and then it kind of got lost in the in the shuffle and in the wayside because they were so surprisingly good in the in the big finish last year and getting to the playoffs and, and really should have beaten the Cowboys. Um, and so I think we got away from this idea a little bit. Um, I'm increasingly optimistic about the 2019 Seahawks. We'll talk much more about that in the next couple of months, of course. Um, it's just so quiet right now. Training camp opens on July 28th. Do you have your training camp tickets? I do. Um, next week is the 4th of July, of course. I am not planning on recording an episode next week unless there's a major Mariners trade, in which case I'll just do like a quick reaction episode. But, um... Uh, that's going to do it for this week. Thanks again so much for the for listening and uh, supporting. If you want to support the podcast more tangibly, you can go to uh, anchor.fm backslash the Dan Cave. Um, reach out to me on Twitter or through email. Let me know what you're thinking. Give me some ideas over the next couple of weeks. In the meantime, have a great 4th of July. And as I always say, when I'm signing off, go Seahawks. Go Mariners. And I didn't talk about them this week, but always go Cougs.